Welcome to Insights of an Echo Artist. Today I have with me Neyma Morelli. She's an Italian art writer, journalist, curator, specialized in contemporary art from the Asia-Pacific and the Nima region. Aiming to create meaningful conversations, she is a regular contributor to many prestigious international magazines and has also published three books on the Southeast Asian contemporary art. Wearing many hats, Neyma also illustrates and writes graphic novels between her many journalistic endeavors. We had a very fruitful conversation about contemporary art in Singapore and Indonesia, and she shares how she goes from conversations with artists to written pieces and later on books. Due to the many insights we shared in our conversation, the podcast is divided into parts. For now, without further ado, let's dive into the conversation. Hello, Naima. Thank you so much for being here. So to start, can you talk a bit about your practice? Okay, my practice, I'm an arts writer and um, a curator. And I'm also a journalist, so I write mostly for um, for art magazine, um, Southeast Asia and Middle East. In particular, these are my kind of area of uh, expertise and sometimes curate show and um, yeah catalog text for for yeah text for catalog uh, curatorial text and stuff like that so that's basically what i'm doing and i'm um, usually i do sort of research uh, for periods of time so i'll um, i'll probably stay one month uh, i i work by country especially so I might stay in one country for, for one month and then I interview all the artists, visit the art space, the galleries and so on. And um, yeah, so that's uh, what I'm doing. And I'm also <laughs> working on my series of graphic novel and comic book, but that's another another thing kind of separate <laughs> in my mind. Yeah. That sounds super interesting. And you write mostly about the contemporary art from Asia Pacific and the Nima region. How did you become interested in covering these regions? So how I became interested in that? Okay, so there is the official story and the unofficial story. The official one is that, um, well, I actually, maybe maybe to trace it even, even um, before what I was about to tell you. <laughs> so, okay, actually, the, the interest in the region, the interest in the region in general was started because I, I visited the show in Rome uh, of uh, Indonesian contemporary art. It was at the Macro, Macro Testaccio, which is a space in Rome uh, yeah, that was rebranded. Anyways, it was an art space in Rome. And I have this show uh, on uh, contemporary Indonesian art. And I was already writing about contemporary art for mostly for Italian magazine. I, I'm Italian and I rarely uh, write for Italian magazines anymore because then the sort of the, the scene, the journalistic scene in Italy is a bit uh, rough for, uh, I guess, writers. Definitely was back then at the time for me. So I kind of, especially having such a specific thing. Anyways... <laughs> Uh, so there was this show and it was the first time for me to be exposed to a type of art that was very political, socially engaged and, um, and, and really telling me the story of a country I know very little about from the perspective of those who, who cross some very uh, central uh, moments in, in the recent history of the country. 
So, of course, I would visit show in Rome and so artists and, of course, the, the art scene in Rome is very international. So you have artists from everywhere, not just Italian artists. And you have uh, many of them just uh, dealing with social issues and political themes and, and stuff like that. And they would, of course, address the story of their own country as well. But there was something very special, I guess, with um, with Indonesian art, with that particular show that was um, very alluring to me. I was always uh, interested in um, in Asia in general. Uh, I was always fascinated with Asia. Just a very, I guess, at the time, very exotic idea, like a, a person from, uh, from Europe could... Uh, could, I guess, have of, of Asia and Southeast Asia from, uh, I don't know, reading books and uh, comic books and movies <laughs> and stuff like that. So I was very young back then. And yeah, so that's the official story. <laughs> the unofficial story is that that particular show I visited with uh, my boyfriend at the time, who was half Italian, half Indonesian, um, living in Australia. And um yeah, and uh, so he, he offered me to spend two months in in his uh, his home in Bali, and I thought, uh, well, I can do an holiday or I can do a reportage on contemporary. <laughs> so what I did is just spend these two months to just do all these these interviews to to artists and um, and visit the space and stuff like that. And it was very quite new to me because, of course, I would. I did some interviews before for this other magazine in Rome I was writing for, but I was doing mostly reviews. So, of course, you would have a very different uh, perspective on um, on uh, the, the subject matter if you are just writing a review. So you're visiting a show, you're saying, oh, maybe the artist will read it, maybe not. I don't care. You don't, uh, I guess, face the artist. You don't yeah. deal with, with, with the artist. So it's um you you are, you are more free in a way but you can be also and you know you are you're an artist of course you know that very well <laughs> like my critics can be also a bit i guess uh i guess not very nice maybe they would just uh be caught by the i don't know their, their own i guess opinion without necessarily thinking that the artist will read it and of course maybe they shouldn't uh, someone can argue but um for me, starting to do more and more interview, and especially facing a culture that was um, that was not my own, and it was of course uh, subject to colonialism and stuff, that made me really think about my role as a writer, as a, an art, art critic, arts, arts writer. Like, what's the point of going to a to a country and say, like, just convey my my blind point of view without really seeing an exchange? And yeah. I wouldn't. From, from that research in Indonesia on, I, I, I couldn't anymore like uh, take this sort of place where I don't no. really deal with, with the people, with the humanity of the person anymore. It was just completely changed my perspective. It shifted my, my, my perception of, uh, of the role of the writer and the role of the art as well, yeah. Yeah, so that's that's it. <laughs> yeah, and I think you were personally involved in a way with the artist when you are interviewing them. Um, right. It's I think it's completely different when you are interviewing someone and you get their perspective of on things and why they did their work, what is behind it, the motivations and the ideologies they follow. It's good to have a broader perspective of the artist because you interview them. Sure, I was actually having a conversation with a friend some some time ago about that. So I guess 
to, to have this exchange with the artist. So it was conveying more of a kind of um, sort of Western point of view, we can say, like this idea that I grew up with, at least in Italy, we grew up with the idea that the art critic should just uh, be concerned about question of taste or question if even if the art is good or not. So that was my approach. So based on my taste, based on my taste, which is informed by all the things I've studied, I've seen, all, the, all my knowledge in a way, I would uh, say if this piece of art is good or not, this exhibition is good or not, this artist is good or not. Whereas for me, the fact of um, really visiting the country, speaking with the artists, really connecting with the artists, exactly as you said, that on an emotional level as well, like they're opening their studio to me and I will see them in their studio and, and I would really connect like empathically with the care they have for what they do. That completely changed everything for me. And I think that's what re what's really important for me. Like, of course, a Cambodian artist, let's say, uh, is probably not very knowledgeable of art history. So, of course, um, because they, they couldn't, they didn't, they didn't have the chance. Of course, Cambodia has this, uh, like, uh, the culture was wiped out by the Khmer Rouge. And the, so it's, they, they didn't have the chance. Whereas maybe someone who grew up in Italy, like me, they, they study art history, they, yeah. they go into churches, they see a lot of art all the time. So, of course, they would have it just a very different. So how can you ignore that? You, you can't possibly say this, this, the work of an Italian artist is better than the one of a Cambodian artist. It's really, not really unfair, it's very useless for me. Like, for me, uh, an artwork should be so, about so much more than the, it's not just a question of it's good or it's bad, it's, it's, it's what, what's, what's, what's around the work, what led to the creation of that particular artwork. And um, the artwork is a key for me to understand the word of an artist. And the word of an artist is not necessarily their own word. It's just, it's just connected to everything else in the end, the story of the country, the, the sort of an individual sensitivity and stuff like that. So that's what, what is really important for me. Then of course you can say uh, in Cambodia, especially I remember there were some artists that were more, more um, kind of Westernly trained and they would say, Oh no, but the rules of the game are set. And uh, so all artists should cope with these rules. So if their art is not good enough, we don't, uh, we don't uh, kind of admit them to the circle of the, of the good artists or whatever. But I really don't believe that. I really, I really believe that the, that the role of art is just so much more than that, than good art, bad art. Uh, the market and stuff like that. There are so many criteria and for me, like the segment I, I choose to, to work in is the one where I, I really care about the humanity that surrounds a work. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think it must be very difficult to say uh, work is good or bad because uh, normally art is very connected with the artist is their own perspective on things. And if the artist is very connected with his work, it might be, I don't know, I'm not a critic, but it might be very difficult to, to consider just the pictorial aspect of the artwork and not everything behind it. Yeah, yeah. once once you know, you can't unlearn it. You just see it and you can't really look at it 
like you see probably just an art show and you don't know how the artwork is made, what was the motivation behind it. You just can't, can't do it. So, of course, what will stay in the end, what would enter the, the, the art history, it's, um, it's probably the artwork itself. Is it good or not? Sure, sure, there is that. But as someone who writes, what's interesting for me is the, the humanity. Then, of course, it's not, it's not, I'm not an art historian. That's a different job. And as well, I can really connect with the artist because I said it's, it's something a bit different. At least, of course, uh, uh, the comic, comic books, graphic novel are something a bit different. But I can also take that perspective because I do that as well. So for me, like, I don't really care. Like, of course, I do strive to to, to just make good work and to be better and, and to, to improve. That's what we all do. But at the same time, I know that the work I'm putting out is the best work I, I can do at this time. Mm. I believe that most artists, they, they work with this mentality. They do the best they can. And there's just the ex- expression of them. It's a personal expression, and, uh, and yeah, you you can't possibly judge that. You can't, you can't. For me, you can't. You can just understand. You can just connect, understand, have empathy, and and just try to convey to the reader uh, what the artist was trying to do, and just or perhaps give them uh, a, an extra key to to just read the work, explain their context, uh, just give uh, someone who's interested in the work of this artist some uh, more element to understand them. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Did you have any experience where you saw the work in, per- in person and you, you, could, you didn't grasp the concept behind it? And then when you interviewed the artist, you got sure. to know them? Yeah. Sure, sure, sure. Many, many, many interactions with the artworks were of, of this kind. Actually, I do have some favorite uh, art, artists, um, especially if we're talking about Southeast Asia. There are some artists that I really con- personally connect with someone that if I was a collector, I would collect. So there are many of, many of them. But um, most of them, actually, especially the social political work. And, and of course, you understand that there's something that is related to politics and because the language, the way they look, but you don't know what they are referring to, for example. And of, of course, you have to ask the artist or read some sort of press release. Of course, you do have also some sort of, uh, let's say, maybe some conceptual work that is not you don't Im- immediately connect with. That's also, um, but that's also the work of the journalist, of the arts writer as well. Like you don't necessarily have the luxury to just uh, skip over what you don't like. Uh, it's a good exercise in general, I guess, in life. Like with books, for example, I would, uh, yeah, for example, with books. I don't read for a job, like I don't review books, so I can, if I don't like a book, I can just uh, just not, not read it. But that's not a luxury that I have with art. And, uh, and even with books, I'm trying to do this uh, more and more to just, uh, uh, I guess, force myself to maybe finish something that I don't really like. Because in the end, it's, it's still what you don't like still gives you a, a parameter to judge what you like. So you understand better what you like based on what you don't like so it's it's just uh, part you, of the process I guess. yeah you have yeah. two perspectives of one thing and that gets you to get the full perspective on the matter i actually do that a lot if i have a subject or a concept that i totally agree with i try to read the opposite so i yes. have two viewpoints of the same sub- subject and i can have a more structured argument that, that's quite helpful <laughs> 
Yeah, exactly. You recently published a book called This is How It Is. How did this project start? Yeah, so this is a monography of uh, Chokwan. He's a a Malaysian artist and actually was, this project was a collaboration with, uh, was started actually by this gallery and that is called Richard Koh Fine Arts. And uh, it's a gallery that is based in uh, in Malaysia, in Singapore um, and in Thailand. Uh, it's a very good gallery and that I was already following before I was following their artists and reviewing the shows. And so the collaboration came out quite naturally because they were like the gallery. Richard was informed by the, the work that I was, um, I guess, doing the research that I was doing in Southeast Asia. So what I did, so this one is an artist whose work is mostly abstract. Okay. So it's, it's, I'm not really into abstract. Like the work that I personally like the most is the, it's kind of the work that is a bit of a read though. Um, so something that uh, you would uh, just uh, uh, unlock a little bit, uh, you learn more about um, maybe something that is also a bit symbolic, tied to mythology. And that, that's that's uh, just, uh, if you speak about contemporary art, that is very much informed by, but also like symbolism, for example, if we think about art history and art from the past, that's something that I really like. With abstract art, I never had like an immediate connection, so I might like it, but I don't have like favorites. Uh, and so with Chok Wan, uh, I started off like that. So I was seeing his work. I said, yeah, of course, I like the work. It's it's a really very diverse, of course, because I look, it's, it's probably my age is a 30 years old uh, artist. And so we generationally connect. And uh, the more I spoke with him, because I did a series of interviews with him, the more I saw that his work was really like close to my own uh, his world was really close to my own world in terms of sensitivity. So maybe it would come out very differently because I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't even know how to start to do abstract art. It's just a very different approach. Uh, he did figurative as well, but um, his sort of like mental category in a way were very complementary to mine. His sensitivity was very close to mine. So there was, for example, an element that is really strong. It's this really violent element, but it's it kind of violent that is more tied to, or at least I tied to like a Nietzschean uh, con- concept of the Dionysiac. So like this, la- this aspect of nature that is violent, but it's really alive. So this kind of uh, sensitivity is something that is really close to my heart, like something that I really resonate with. And... I find it also in his, his work, but also this sort of like alarm, this sort of like uh, research of something really spiritual that would elevate you. So that's that's also something that he had, his research into spirituality and um, in many different forms, so some sort of like new age concept in a way, but also like going back to his own Malaysian culture and uh, and for me, that was also like a big, uh, a big uh, connector, something that, um, yeah, that I could really write about. So the process was really beautiful. So what, what we did, um, so the gallery uh, sent me to Malaysia to just, uh, I spent uh, some time in Kuala Lumpur, like visiting the artist studio. And I think I, that's, I asked, I asked that not only to, to see more of the works in person, because I saw some of the works in Singapore for, for some shows that he did, but I wanted to see also more work in person. Of course, it's painting, yeah. so you do, have, yeah, yeah, you do have to see it in person, of course, to get the impression. But, 
there are quite big canvases, so you are you have to have this um, sort of physical confrontation with the canvas as well. It's very important, but it's not just that. I wanted to spend time with the artist, which I did. Uh, spend some time with him, see his work, see the, all the places that were really important for him. I didn't manage to go to his hometown. Um, but uh, in Kuala Lumpur, it showed me some places that really like the temple of a, a particular um, kind of Buddhism that's uh, very specific to, to Malaysia, that uh, it was uh, this sort of like center uh, where we would practice this particular form of Buddhism. And um, and you would see on the on the on the frescoes on the on the um, on the walls of this uh, sort of uh, center, and they were representing the the hell, the uh, the sort of like hell of uh, their their kind of hell. And yeah. it was also um, tied to sort of Chinese concepts. So there were many many different um, philosophies coming together. It was really kind of a syncretic kind of religion and they show me these sort of places we spoke with some people uh that were practicing this very specific religion and they were meeting and uh, and it was really interesting and i saw a studio that was uh, surrounded by nature very far from the city his doberman his dog that was and all these small details you know for the writing all these small details they just add up and so yeah i did that then I went back to to Rome where I'm based and I started writing I already wrote uh, some some notes in the beginning but then chapter by chapter ha- I had this uh, sort of like a catalog of his work just just the image a pdf with all the works and each series I remember I was approaching it I was going at my local cafe and I was writing x amount of words at the by at, like every day and there was a particular moment where I really like the, the emotional state I was living was really connected to what I was writing about so when that happened it's really beautiful it's just what you live can be like your lived experience it's not the, the the actual thing that happened day by day, but the general the general feeling, the general emotion that you're experiencing can be like transferred in the writing. That's the most beautiful feeling for me because the writing really comes alive. It's very important that the writing is alive. So I was living a sort of like uh, emotional. Um, I would say not really turbulence because they were not necessarily negative, but a sort of like emotional state, even deeper than emotional states, I would say. Sort of like, I don't know, spiritual transformation, you can say. I don't know, but that sounds a bit too uh, too big. But yeah, that uh, was transferred directly into the writing. So that was a kind of a process. Then the pandemic happened. It was a bit messy because... uh, yeah, with uh, Malaysia was experience. Well, of course, Italy experienced a very bad, uh, and then Malaysia as well. But in the end, the book was was done, and uh, yeah, we're all happy about that. It's a beautiful book. Yeah. It sounds amazing the all experience around the book that you got to meet meet the artist where he went where he spent his time he went to his studio do you, do you have any language barriers or it was a smooth sailing and you were there and then you went back to Rome right it. No, 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 I speak, of course, he speaks English, even like probably better English than me. <laughs> Maybe language varied with me, but uh, yeah, no, uh, like luckily, luckily in Malaysia, most artists, they speak very good English. Uh, they were English colony before, Maybe that's not necessarily related, but uh, yeah, there, were, there are some countries where the language barrier is kind of a thing. Um, Cambodia, for example, language barrier was really 
really something uh, we have to deal with. So I had uh, maybe some galleries provided translators and um, sometimes we just try to understand each other. Well, like for my first trip in Indonesia, my English was really bad. Uh, which well, it was really bad, but luckily they also were speaking pretty. Like their English was also a bit, uh, I guess, messy. So we kind of. Uh, but I really have a lot of funny anecdote about, um, yeah, the 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 sort of misunderstandings uh, due to my like not really great mastery of the language. But uh, yeah, that was at the beginning. Luckily that is not really happening anymore but uh, yeah so in our last conversation you mentioned that you travel to interview various artists what is the process that leads to a finished piece okay what is the process that leads to a finished piece so like right now there is a different i guess modality of working because of course i'm not uh, traveling that much like everyone else and um, lately i've been writing more and more about middle east middle east is something that uh, happened by chance because i started uh, so i wrote another book like my first book was uh, contemporary art in indonesia was written in italian and i had a publisher that i did end up uh, discarding that publisher but uh, long story short um i met at the publishing house, another person, another writer, uh, researcher. Uh, she's called Lucia Laquaniti, actually. She's a, a great um, a great researcher on Tunisia and uh, the Arab region in general. She also has an art space in Rome called Kif Kif in my neighborhood, actually, a few blocks from here. Yeah, anyways. <laughs> anyways, I met her and she was uh, working on this great book on Assange that was super interesting that was a graffiti in Tunis and how they were instrumental in the in the revolution during the, the, the Arab Spring and so that was super interesting we were at the same age and I thought yeah I can interview you I just have to find a magazine to pitch the story to because I, I actually didn't know I was uh, well back then I didn't even have a very steady collaboration with foreign magazine uh, and um, yeah but I actually started through that piece. I started collaborating with a magazine that is called Middle East Monitor that I still write uh, the art section for. Yeah, it's it's a great magazine. It's it's actually not not it's very I guess politically oriented. Of course, pro Palestine, uh, very pro Palestine. And I would uh, just write about the the man the the so called Mena region, so the the Middle East and the North Africa a lot and I was also learning about I haven't traveled in the Middle East actually so I met people who came here I met um, like the individuals but I never did like a full like I did in Southeast Asia like a full uh, full on uh, monthly <laughs> research on the on the scene I didn't I never never did that but of course I'm like my name is Naima which is an, an Arabic name so they everybody thinks I'm sort of like uh, Arabic uh, Italian or something like that so that is kind of a like a <laughs> a good coincidence so they they assume I would speak Arabic so yeah talking of language barrier like uh Next language I should uh, learn is Arabic, but uh, that's kind of a, like a long-term plan. Yeah, so I started writing about Middle East, but the, your question was what leads to a finished piece, right? Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, 
So uh, actually, yeah, the process is different right now because I, I didn't travel to, so right now I'm writing a lot about Libya, but it's kind of difficult to go to Libya. No, of course, there are many journalists who do go to Libya, but for me, like personally, it would be kind of uh, very difficult to go to Libya right now. So what I, I also cover the arts, so it's... Um, I can't, I can probably, like, I do a lot of interviews, so I, I will just Zoom with them. And um, especially if it's a multi-source piece, so I'm writing something uh, for Al Jazeera about um, literature, like uh, feminist literature in Libya, Frank and Duffy. <laughs> so that's a very specific topic. Like, how did I even uh, started writing about that? Of course, it's, it's all interest that leads one to another. So maybe yeah. that can be for, for a listener to, 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 to just uh, to know this process. But for example, for Libya, uh, like... Yeah, Indonesia, maybe I had, like, I saw the show, I had uh, the boyfriend at the time who was Indonesian, so that the connection is very clear. But for Libya, what's my connection with Libya? So for that, that is related to colonialism, because, of course, like, uh, exploring a lot of Southeast Asia, colonialism is a subject that, of course, it's, it's inevitable to, to tackle. And colonialism, Italian also had, of course, uh, Southeast Asia, or had uh, many different countries colonized them, but of course never Italians, because Italians never had uh, really had colonies except for uh, North Africa. So there was a period in history where Italy tried to colonize uh, Eritrea, Ethiopia, and of course Libya. And um, and so I was interested in that also because with the comic book, I'm, I'm really looking a lot at the, at the 1900s. That's a time like fascism in Italy. It's, it's a time that is a bit of a removed from the collective consciousness, like what, like a clear analysis. Of course, uh, the idea is fascism is bad, which of course was, but at the same time, there's so many uh, nuances to that to really understand yeah. what fascism did and uh, and really how it affected also other other not just Italians themselves, but in general, like for example, yeah, Libya, for example. So my first uh, piece was how I had this interesting in mind, this thing that was running in my mind, like uh, on uh, just on parallel to many other things, like thinking of pitching magazine, like what I should write about. And I saw that an Italian artist was doing a, was sort of interviewing their grandparents who were um, sort of living in Libya and they were kicked away by uh, Gaddafi, when Gaddafi came to power, he kicked, kicked off uh, all the Italians from Libya. And so the, the Italians, they were settlers who were, were there since, uh, yeah, since fascist time, basically, um, when, when Mussolini sent all the, all the Italians to, to the so-called colonies. And so there was a time where there was, uh, the, of course, the, the sort of uh, the occupation of Libya by the Italians was really bloody and was really horrible, was there were chemical weapons uh, that, of course, were illegal at the time they were employed. It was, uh, there, there were concentration camps as well done by the Italians. So it was really, it was really disgusting. But then another period in time, like time passes and uh, so they sort of like started to, like a peaceful period uh, came out of this. Uh, so maybe many elders would remember, like either Italians or Libyan would remember that 
in particular, there are not so many historians who wrote about uh, that period. There is an Italian historian called Giorgio del Boca who wrote a lot about uh, that part of history, but there are not many. From Libya also, there are not so many sources as well. Yeah, there's not much written about that. And so, um, and so yeah, she was interviewing her grandparents. Uh, there's also something that really struck a chord for me because I'm also like interviewing my grandparents because they, they all have stories. I don't know if you do that as well with your grandparents as well, like if you if you still have them, but uh, um, it's it's always very interesting for me to listen to elders and the story that they have to, to tell. Yeah. And so, yeah, that was that. And I pitched the story. So I pitched the story to one magazine, Middle East, Middle East Eye, that I was writing about, that I was writing for. And they they say, yeah, that sounds really interesting, but maybe you can interview another three artists who are working on the same subject and maybe another Libyan source. And, uh, and so they asked me to expand the article. And that was the first time that they asked me to just say, sort of slanted my, my 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 pitch and they made something so much bigger and I remember I spent so much time to work on this and uh, that's the same that's happening to Al Jazeera right now like I said so there are so many months that this is carrying on with the editing and this of course is very frustrating for for a writer because of course you do all the editing you have sources you have to go back to the same sources to confirm to expand so that takes so much time and like uh, it's it really it of course takes takes from other assignments but i can say it was really worth it because it really opened up open opened up to me like a new understanding of uh, libya and what libya is and uh, so in that case for example i interviewed some uh, like the process for that piece that was also republished by other publications, including Italian publications. So that was really something, uh, something really good that was shared so widely. But for that piece, for example, I've interviewed the sources, most of them via uh, 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 Skype or Zoom. And uh, some, they were just sending me quotes. So I would just send them the, let's say, oh, I would prefer to answer by email, especially if they're like there is a language barrier, yeah, especially yeah, yeah. prefer to do that. And so I put all the information together and yeah, the, the piece came out and it was such a learning. And of course, I would read a lot about um, the history as well. So I have all this interview coming together and I would just write the piece and they I would send to them, they would send me the editing back and forth to <laughs> you ask that to them like you can ask but very specific question about stuff and the sources were very I guess patient to keep up with me because I also think about them I think <laughs> but that's kind of normal like the editing process it is quite grueling although I don't care like if they if they edit my article like I prefer like of course I guess I guess there are some people who like to be to have the editing because they think they it really fortifies their 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 writing for me is I'm kind of like uh, yeah the, the first I'm good with the first draft kind of work <laughs> <laughs> kind of uh, <laughs> But of course, that kind of balance my natural instinct to just uh, be, be be fine with the first draft. So there's always a learning experience. Yeah. 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 Sounds like a very long process just for one piece. Yeah. You are a regular <laughs> contributor to Kobo Social Plural Art Magazine, Middle East Monitor, Middle East Eye, among others. And you write curational texts for galleries. 
How do you manage your time? How do I manage my time? Yeah. So <laughs> for most of these uh, magazines, of course, there are collaborations that are more steady, but I always pitch ideas. So like on a on a monthly basis. So I, I think on a monthly basis, I think I have but all this kind of more steady collaboration. And for me, steady means that uh, they will recognize my name. So they will pay more attention. They will consider my pitch because, of course, I would pitch uh, all sort of magazine and they won't even get back to me like that's the normal I guess the normal for a for a journalist but so I have some probably some uh, five six uh, five let's say five magazines that I know that they would uh, give a look at my idea so there is the research process where I spend some time so th- these days uh, like yes there was a research day so I would just uh, go to the um, sort of like the news and uh, and of course I would get the press releases and uh, I would uh, look at the Facebook page of the artist, uh, the, the pages that I follow, all the different sources that I have and uh, just scout, like looking for ideas. Yeah, among these ideas, I kind of filter. I think this one can be interesting for that magazine, this other one for this other magazine. Then there are some subjects I just want to write about just because I think it's a great idea. So I would just... Uh, just write that. And it's actually really nice to, to Bish Magazine because it's kind of a wish list in a way because uh, it's like, uh, for me, writing, of course, sometimes it's a bit grueling, but uh, generally speaking, it's really a pleasure. And sometimes I can't even like, realize that I'm doing it as a job. Like it's still like, it's something that I always love to do when you're a bit constricted by by like a, a very um, cold, well, you can say cold. I feel it's a bit cold sometimes, kind of writing more journalistic, let's say, very dry, like drier way of structure. writing. Yeah, yeah, more dry. Like you can't really put uh, sort of like your, I guess, impressions or emotion, or maybe do some sort of like small scenes and, and small stories. That's what I. That's what my writing naturally tends to to create like small small scenes. But you can't always do that. Like you can very rarely do that, sadly. So sometimes it has to be dry. But even when it's dry, I still quite like to do it. I like to to work with words and uh, with concepts and just discover. So it's really great. So I'm really happy to do that. Like I'm really happy in this phase of research, the phase of the... um, yeah, you put together the idea, you do the pitching, and then uh, and then so there is like the pitching phase where you put like the idea, you structure in a pitch, and you send it to the magazine. So that's another, I guess, day when you devote yourself to that. Then of course there is the um, the part when you actually do the interview, prepare the interview, very much like you do, I guess. For this <laughs> yeah. <part. laughs> yeah, and then the writing itself, and then uh, of course on a monthly basis I have this steady collaboration, and I would go through the process of like doing the article for them, and then of course I would um, just pitch new magazine just to see if I can go new in new directions yeah. when I'm able to travel, which is maybe not like in the past few years, like past few years, I just like everyone, it was a bit difficult to travel, like to do the one month long travel, just because at least in Italy and Southeast Asia in particular, like regulation change all the time. So you can't really stay one block of the time, yeah. like knowing how to do this research and now go back and I'll be able, you can't really plan. But in general, what I do, what, I, what I've been doing for like 10 years or so, it's just... Um, prepare the research like usually in January 
I would uh, leave because in January they have the, the art fair in Singapore. So I would go to Singapore and then explore maybe some other country and just stay one month there. So in general, I would leave sometimes something uh, a little down the line, something else would uh, come out. So I would travel a second time to Asia during the year. But of course, I'm, I'm being able to do that because one, one of the things that I'm doing that I, I'm like, also thanks to the pan- thanks uh, in a way to the pandemic i i was able to spend more and more time on that is the is the comics the graphic novel and stuff so i'm doing basically what i'm doing like daily routine <laughs> what i'm doing is just going around so i would do just uh just all the things like my yoga my meditation stuff like that in the morning i'm just sitting in the morning and then i would do then i would just go go down to my cafe my favorite cafe and uh, the 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 nice thing like the neighborhood where i live it's very nice like all city have a neighborhood like the one i'm living the one i'm living here is the copineto and it's uh I don't know. You're based in Portugal, right? Yeah. So I'm yeah. sure there, yeah, there is, uh, which, which city? Like it's a smaller city or like a bigger? I'm in the north of the country. So I'm surrounded by nature. So. Okay. So it's a very natural. <laughs> but yeah, but I'm sure every main city, just even in Portugal, is one neighborhood that is a bit more, I guess, quirky, like for like old people that do smart working and stuff like that. So that's that's my neighborhood. And um, and yeah, there is this cafe where all their old people with computer, maybe a few, a few journalists as well, and they are we are working side to side, and uh, we are kind of uh, working on our things. Then around around lunchtime, I will go back, and the afternoon will be dedicated to doing the the comic books. So so I would just uh, draw, basically draw and paint, and uh, do all these these kind of things. And that's a separate, I guess, thing. So the afternoon, are, unless I have something really urgent in terms of article that I need to finish. Uh, and I would just uh, work in the afternoon, of course, because I, as I said, I work on monthly basis. So I try to close off all the articles that, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm on a deadline, but deadline are quite extended. So I have uh, kind of given myself a discipline. So I might uh, rarely work in the in the afternoon as well on the on the writing as well. But uh, yeah, it's kind of, that's the division of time in the and then I will train. That is also very important, I guess, when you do something that is a bit more static, it's very important to, yeah, we don't really have much nature in the city. What we do at the parks is not the same time like actual, I guess, nature. So I would just, just to just feel my body again, I would just train martial arts. Yeah, so that's, that's my, I guess, my routine. <laughs> It sounds it sounds amazing. I just would love to be like to go in the morning to a cafe and just sit there writing. That'd be really nice. I normally do that. I divide my day, so I do yeah. writing or sculpture. It depends. I do sometimes in the morning or afternoon. I'm not concise. If, well, if I have a yeah. deadline, as you said, I just have to take the day off. The day off to just write, you know, uh, yeah. and then I also go outside go for a walk with my dog and do exercise. Exercise is a very yes. big aspect of my life. All this uh, has been, so it's, and it's very important for someone with, with has these ideas and is developing this yeah. thinking. It's very important to move your body. So the, I don't know, the ideas can actualize. I don't know. It's something, it's a, a weird the process. Yeah. Yeah. They can flow more naturally. Yeah. I don't like always stuck in a head. 
right? Like with movements, you just uh, kind of free them. What kind of exercise do you do? Now I'm just, I don't go to the gym. I used to do martial, martial arts, Krav Maga and Aikido. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but now I'm not in the city anymore. So I just have uh, my weights in, in my house and I do calisthenics and go for a run and do gym things but from the house perspective (laughs) but it's just good to keep the the body moving yeah yeah that's great it's really great that we come back from that as well like maybe a lot of people realize that with the pandemic how important is to is to move but of course you you also said that was also for you it was also uh, like dates way back so i guess yeah it's it's so important like for a long time i would just uh, well, I guess maybe walk. I would walk a lot everywhere. I would walk instead of taking public transport. But it's a bit different than from actual, I guess, exercise. Because like for me, exercise is really something that clears the mind. And you have to have your mind empty for a little while in order to just uh, kind of have your ideas to just, I guess, flow more naturally. Otherwise, you just obsess on stuff and you just have to let it go at a certain point. So, so yeah, I'm sure yeah. for you it's right. Yeah. It's the same. When I go for a walk, I used to to do these long walks in Lisbon to the city. I know a lot about the city because I used to walk a lot. Yeah. And I always yeah. do did the walking to think. So I had an idea. Yeah. I needed to think about it. So I just walked. Sometimes I annoyed my friends because I would love just to walk and to talk. You know, just to yeah. like, yeah. like Joanna, can we sit and not be like walking and talking? It was like okay okay I can do that <laughs> but when yeah. was actually exercise was just to to clean the mind completely and it's very it's very important just to I don't know reset let's say it like that just like, don't yes. think about anything yeah. so can you tell us a bit about the art scene in Indonesia and Singapore in Indonesia and Singapore I guess I'll start with Singapore just because I've talked about Indonesia yeah, yeah. quite a bit well, Singapore was really interesting. It's I, I went back, of course, I went many times to Singapore. Actually, every time I, I travel to Southeast Asia, I try to spend some time there just because it's, I guess, one artist, uh, they find it, uh, I guess, uh, easy Asia because it's kind of... Uh, Yes, all many things that uh, other Southeast Asian countries have, but it's really safe, it's really clean, it's really easy to go around. It's really easy, actually. And I really like it. Uh, I guess for living there, it's living there would be a bit different, but just it's a safe uh, it's a safe base to, to, and to move from there and to explore from there. Do you ever consider moving to, the, to these countries? Yeah, yeah, of course I did. Of course, it doesn't make any sense for me to stay in Rome while I'm writing about Asia and, and uh, Middle East. It would be much more, it would make much more sense to be based, yeah, actually in Dubai or in Singapore or wherever. Only problem is that this city is for a freelance writer, like they're insanely expensive and all the expats that live there, they're there because they have a job and they, they work for a company and the company pays their insurance, they're expensive, they're housing and stuff like that. For me, like, you know, the, the, yeah, I, yeah, it's not, it's not, it's not affordable and in general, I'm not really sure. Like, I really like Singapore, but it's really small. Like, yeah, after a while, it gets. They have a lot of sayings that I don't actually remember. Something like, something a bit gross, like you fart in the east, they they, they smell you in the west, just because <laughs> the, it's super small. Like, it's a bit, 
with the big city. So uh, it's not, well, in general, it's not that I go, like, now that I'm in Rome, like, now that I'm not doing any traveling and stuff, it's not that I go out every weekend, like, in the countryside or to visit other cities as well. But just to know that there is the possibility that you can go maybe to another, another city and not take a plane, you can just yeah. go by train. That's something that is uh, in Singapore. You can you can go everywhere in Southeast Asia, but you have to take a plane. Oh, I mean, it is a question of perspective. I'm sure if I would live that, if I wouldn't mind, uh, and actually, all expat that live that. But yeah, I did consider that. I did move to Australia for a little while just to be closer to Southeast Asia, even if it's not really close. Closer, yeah. But that was a long way as well. Like culturally, I guess there's more impacts. Yeah. This station, but so quite far, yeah, that was back in 2013, 2014, something like that. So, I did consider for a while to not just uh stay in my, my, I guess, in my country and just, but for now, I'm really happy in Rome. So, we'll see, we're building from here and yeah. uh, and we'll see. But yeah, the, the original question was different, right? Oh, Singapore, yeah, Singapore, yeah. Singapore right? Yeah, so, Singapore is super interesting because the, the way I approach it, the artist, well, for starters, Singapore is a big hub. So, it's uh, it, it used to be part of, like, historically, used to be part of Malaysia and then they split up. Singapore becomes, became one different thing and with, with its former leader, Lee Kuan Yew, it became economically developed so much faster than all, all the surrounding countries. So it really became a powerhouse. And um, the interesting thing is that for years in Singapore, they just, all people, like the, the general politics was just like work, work, work. There was a lot of interesting uh, movements, uh, sort of like changes happen. Singapore used to be, we used to be, of course, um, English colony and used to be divided by, like they have the Malaysian neighborhood and then they have a, an Indian one, a Chinese one, and a smaller one for Caucasians. Okay. And these were quite separate and Singapore was always like, used to be like originally, uh, yeah, of course, inhabited by like a Malay population. And, uh, but of course, then there was all the immigration from China. Immigration from China is just spreading on Southeast Asia, they're called Pranakan. Uh, and they are like, uh, there were different kind of immigration. And so, of course, they are kind of like, even like in the racism between like... Um, like uh, Chinese from the, that emigrated at different times. But in Singapore, of course, Chinese ethnicity slowly, slowly became uh, sort of prevalent. Um, with Lee Kuan Yew as well, there was uh, Chinese. Like for a while, it seems that Malay and Malay ethnicity and Chinese were kind of like on the same. But then with Lee Kuan Yew, um, there was kind of a Chinese-ization of culture, we can say. Okay. And of course, the English, they have this kind of uh, like, this, this person who kind of was considered the founding father of the country, of course, the country was there already but yeah. like you know like white colonial raffles uh english of course he kind of became so we have the raffle hotel and we have the raffles here raffles there it's kind of like a yeah anyways there are all these culture coming together and uh really on you it becomes really westernized as well like english was um there is actually the official language and, and the native language, something like that. I don't remember exactly what's the distinction, but basically everyone, like all kids were taught English as the first language. Oh, okay. And 
yeah, the interesting thing is that this created really a disconnect. Uh, again, talking about language, how it's yeah. important to just consider language when we think about communication, when we think about even interaction with people like in Singapore, people of different ethnicities. So many Chinese people were not even speak before they were not even speaking uh, Chinese, they were speaking dialects. So they were all different dialects. And so there was kind of a, the older generation kept on speaking their dialects, the younger generation couldn't communicate with their grandparents. So that was already quite bad. And so what happened is also what happens in, in all, I guess, all countries in the, that developed. So also in Italy as well, like on the peripheral, the, the, the sort of the outskirts of the cities, there were more... There was a division between generations, you mean, because of the language yeah. and the culture? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that, that's another thing that was, I mean, in terms of urbanization, now I'm speaking more, in terms of urbanization, there were all the... Oh, outskirts. okay. Yeah. They were sort of, they were, they, they were like the public housing was built, public housing. That also happened in Italy as well in the 70s. All this, in, in Rome, for example, they're called the Borgata. Um, I'm sure even in Portugal, they are there something similar happened. So there were all these uh, sort of like small communities in the end. They were living in housing that was really makeshift. So they were just um, like government at the time decided just to wipe everything away. Like there are many movies in Italy done about that, like Pasolini did a few movies. Uh, when you see all the, 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 the Baraccopoli, they're called in Italy. So they are really shanty, shanty towns, basically. And they, are, they were wiped out. They were building, like, public housing. But as well, like, the way the... Like, that's where, like, it's really important to think about urbanism. Because, like, all these communities, these people, they were just having their, yeah, shanty house, but really communicating with the neighbor. They have this more, this more, they were, of course, they were not hygiene. It was all, all very, it was, yeah, you can say they, they were really poor and there was not even the, the basic uh, I guess the basic needs uh, were not met by the housing, but at the same time, by having all these people that were communicating so much, living in sort of like vertical, vertical uh, condos, it just became just a very different way to relating to each other. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, the, the building was vertical and it's just uh, sort of wiped out the, the, the horizontal, I guess, way of communicating among people. And uh, that happened in Singapore, even in a bigger way, because what the government, the government, like a feature in Singapore that is really relevant is the fact that the government basically controls everything. <laughs> Maybe that is loosening up a little bit, but with Lee Kuan Yew, it was a really centralized, uh, centralized around this figure of this leader who was powerful, who actually did uh, achieve the very uh, important results in terms of economics, that's, uh, that's undeniable. But, but of course, there was a cost that was paid. So there were all this um, growth, economical growth at the expenses of uh, culture, at the expenses of uh, so social relations among individuals. Mm -hmm. So they built this condos, they put Malaysian there with, uh, with, uh, with Chinese, with Indians. So they would, uh, the idea was to have them uh, connect with each other and uh, create uh, relations. But that, yeah. yeah, but that, of course, didn't happen because people don't work like that. Just, yeah. You don't just put people together. Okay, just try to make friends with each other. No, it doesn't work like that. It doesn't happen organically. And the fact with Singapore that nothing happens organically, that's the feature with Singapore. Everything is pre-planned. 
Uh, that's that's something that was really interesting for me in terms of like a mental model. Because of course, personally, I was also going through something similar as well. Like we all, we are, even like if we are like in the arts, so we shouldn't, uh, we don't have that as a, as a mindset. But of course, to make order in our lives, of course, we, we try to make schemes and make plans and within, from this time to this time, I'll work yeah. on that. And, and we like try to calculate our productivity. I see that you're smiling so much. You're like, <laughs> I'm completely like this. <laughs> Yeah, so we try to give ourselves discipline, and that's a good thing. And so we are kind of our central government, our inner Liguanyu, who try to just have our sort of like personal growth to just increase and just to like get some results. But that's something gets squished in the meantime. So like, just like Singapore was growing economically and they were saying we don't have space for cultures, culture, basically what we were saying is culture is useless. So there were some small groups of artists who would come out, like the artist village, um, maybe they were doing things, but they kind of like shut down. Sometimes they were even episode of censorship because culture was not really something that was no one cared, cared about. about that. Yeah. Yeah, like the local culture, the original culture, no one even remember what, what it was. Of course, it was the Malay culture, it was the Chinese Pranakan culture that was imported in a way, and there were small things where culture expresses, but in terms of the arts, also we have a different conception of arts as well, but we don't have the monuments, we don't have the, like in, in Singapore, they don't have the Angkor Wat, or they don't have the Burbudur, all the monuments that are in Cambodia and Indonesia, they don't have that. They have different things, and they were these were not uh, taken care for. So Chinatown, of course, we have Chinatown, they have Chinatown in, in Singapore, uh, that is really very well kept, like even like uh, fake in a way, like they, be, well, okay, so I'm, I'm running, <laughs> <laughs> I'm just, just, just jumping to conclusion, but in general, like uh, what they did up to a certain point in Singapore was not really caring about the arts. Then what happened is that, um, is that they start caring because they, they understood around to the, the 2000 that, uh, it was an important economic effect. Yeah. So yeah, we should care about the yeah, sure, like because there are countries like Indonesia. Who, well, of course, uh, political situation in Indonesia has been quite messy, like to say the least. But uh, they did have something organic that developed. They have a lot of artists from spaces, and actually, Indonesian artists was selling quite well. It was uh, still, still is like one of the most prominent art scene in Southeast Asia. And so Singapore realized that they, they look at Hong Kong, Hong Kong, and they saw that Hong Kong was doing really well in terms of like positioning itself as a heart hub. And so they, because they were, of course, uh, compared to Hong Kong, uh, they were more closer to, of course, all Southeast Asia. They were in, in the middle. They were always like a commercial port. They decided to, to just became, uh, to just take that position of being an art hub. And so the government heavily started investing in the arts. They were putting a lot of money in the arts. But of course, like the, the government give the money to the artists, but they want us to control the artists. It's like oh, a parent. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, that's the met- metaphor that I encounter over and over again. Like this government is a parent to say, yeah, of course you can make art, but you can't criticize me. <laughs> well, it makes sense, right? It's yeah. not a big mm. deal. 
Yeah, it makes sense. And you can choose. Of course, there was no direct censorship in the sense that artists, of course, if you want to do something critical of the government, you don't go to the government. Of course, if you want to, I don't know, criticize your parents, you don't, uh, I guess, go to them to ask them for, um, I guess, money to, I don't know. <laughs> for them to be criticized. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, you do your I'm sure, but you do it. I mean, it makes sense for me. For me, that's, that's not really censorship. You can choose if to take this money or not, because like, maybe because I'm used to Italy where artists, it's really hard for artists to, to get money from the government. You don't have many opportunities. You do have some, but you don't have many opportunities. So as an artist in Italy, you grow up not thinking that the government will support you. That's not something you would think. And it's really good when the, man, the, when the government supports you and allows you also complete freedom. That's the ideal situation. Yeah. But in Singapore, of course, they, they, they will bring this as an investment. So you kind of know when you accept that money, you kind of know who's giving you the money. And, mm-hmm. and of course, there is this bureaucratic element in Singapore that was also super heavy. So you have like artists who do tons of paperwork to get, to get the funding, to get the space, to get everything because it's so... Like society in Singapore is so bureaucratized, if you can say that. And so that's also something I was looking at. This idea of bureaucracy for me is really the contrary of imagination. So if you think about bureaucracy, some like they ask you to compile a form. You you, you have just to, to, to write something to be super clear that doesn't open your mind to any possibility. It has to be like direct, straightforward, and it has to be super straightforward. Whereas imagination art is, is completely the contrary. It's just the, the, the use of the word. Like for poetry, you write a word and the word it opens dimension. That's the, that's the point of art. You just said, like, if you have this, oh, of course, you can't see because that's recorded. But if you have like a cup, like the one I'm holding in my hand, and if, if I have to write about this cup for, um, I don't know, some sort of document that document all the object in this room, I would have to write that this is a cup and it is just a cup. It's not nothing more than a cup. But if 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 this is an artwork, my mind would start open up to all different uh, ideas about what this can mean and uh, where does it come from and uh, all of this. And maybe you can just, uh, you can connect this to the shape of something else that I've met in my life and whatever. So it's just, just too separate. So how can it possibly work like this bureaucratized, super highly planned situation? Like if you plan every single moment of your life, where's the space for like the unexpected to happen where, where and it's not that life is all unexpected of course like the the the, the final I guess thesis of everything I wrote about Singapore is that of course it's a balance yeah right <laughs> yeah of course it's not it's not uh, like uh, this, this great news or whatever but in Singapore this was so so polarized so clear that it was really it was really a situation where you can really see the all these forces that play in such a clear way that uh, you can't you couldn't have writing about the system not really the artists but the system that the artists were working in yeah yeah and if you have very bureaucratic regimes uh it m- might be difficult for the artists to fit in like in, in mm-hmm. Portugal when you're tr- as an artist if you're trying to do anything the bureaucratic part of it is very big. So if you have a project and you want to go to the government for it, you have so many paperwork to do that you'll be discouraged to do anything. Yeah, yeah. And can it be that? And for an artist, it's very important to know how to write because everything... 
you do you have to apply to to a lot of things and there is a lot of paperwork so knowing how to convey artwork into writing and to be appealing is i think it's a very important tool for an artist to own because otherwise it'll be just very complicated to apply to any funds any residencies any galleries you just have to be very precise in your writing yes yes you have to have that skill yeah yeah I hope you enjoyed the conversation and if you did, don't forget to hit subscribe and follow in your favorite app so that you don't miss upcoming episodes. Find the show notes with links and resources at our website and subscribe to our free weekly newsletter. You can also follow us on Instagram at dot insights of an echo artist and let us know your takeaway. Enjoying the show? Support Insights of an Echo Artist on Patreon for bonus resources, access to our private community and more. 